This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. It is about property taxes. We'll talk about this later on in the program. Do you feel you get your money's worth where you're worth taxes, what you pay in your municipality? Vote now on Twitter. Yes, good bang for the buck. No, we are taxed way too much. You can vote at CKNW. Thanks for being with us this morning. Well, as you might have heard on the morning show with Simi Sarah, Wally Opal joined Simi to talk about the release of the report that takes a look at transitioning to a civic force in Surrey to get rid of the RCMP and have the Surrey Police Force. The report itself is 455 pages, a lot of information in that report. But what does it mean as far as costs, the timing of the transition? Still a lot of questions as to what could be happening in the city of Surrey. Let's bring in Linda Annis, a Surrey City Councillor, to talk a bit more about this. Councillor, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Jill. I know it, it is 455 pages. I'll fully admit I have not read the entire thing. I've gone through some parts of it. Have you been able to go through the report? Uh, not in its entirety yet. I have uh, done the executive summary and gone through much of the report. So, you know, I do have a pretty good understanding in terms of where it's going. Uh, so what, do you, what is your take on it then from what you've seen so far? There's an awful lot of unanswered questions. I'm still struggling with why in the first place that we're doing this, why we're changing the badges for the sake of changing the badges at a cost of $129.6 million, and that's for transition costs only. And that number, quite frankly, I don't have a lot of confidence in. There's things in the report, as by way of example, says that IT could cost anywhere between 6 and $20 million. And in calculation in the $129.6 million, they've used the lower numbers. So I think we're in for even a bigger price tag to do this uh, transition than the $129.6 million. And when you talk about that number, because that kind of stuck out to me as well, that this $129 million for the transition, what exactly does that money co- uh, cover? That covers uh, things, um, uh, you know, in terms of IT, uh, differential in terms of benefits and, you know, new equipment, uh, training, a multitude of things. And you're not confident then as far as that figure that it, that it, that it will remain $129 million? It could be much more? I, I am not confident in that number whatsoever. You know, when you look at things again like IT, that it could go anywhere from 6 to $20 million, and you choose the lower number, well, there's $14 million right there. I was looking for things in the report about indemnification, you know, if there's um, lawsuits or things like that, how do we pay for that? Uh, that's not, uh, uh, I couldn't find that in the document. There's a lot of stuff that seems to be missing. And you talked about the idea of this is uh, merely a, a badge change. Do you think enough attention has been paid on, uh, say, an RCMP member in Surrey who has lived and worked in Surrey, say, even for 10 years, 8 years, 10 years, has a home in Surrey, has a family in Surrey, has kids perhaps that go to school in Surrey? That person has two choices, I would imagine, either apply and hope to get on the new Surrey police force or continue with the RCMP and go to another detachment. Do you think enough has been talked about or looked at as to what kind of disruption this is going to have for the number of people who are in that scenario? I don't think we've paid enough attention around that. There's been not enough transparency through this whole process. There haven't been uh, much engagement, to the best of my knowledge, with the RCMP or with residents of Surrey. People that join the RCMP 
join because they're proud to be RCMP members, and they do a fabulous job in our community. And to suggest for a moment that massive numbers of them are going to switch over to a proposed Surrey Police Department, I don't think is valid. Um, They haven't been consulted. We don't know how many are coming over. We can't really make a guess at that until they're asked. And I think, quite frankly, they're so proud of being RCMP members, and so they should be, that I think a lot are going to request to be transferred out. And if that's the case, then where did the new officers come from to make up the Surrey Police Department? Well, they can come from a couple of places. Um, Certainly new recruits uh, that can come in. Uh, We will be looking to other municipalities and cities to try to attract um, their police officers to uh, become uh, over to Surrey to serve in Surrey. And that can be, quite frankly, problematic for the whole policing model for the Lower Mainland. The other thing that can happen, too, is members that uh, may be retiring from other police forces can sign up uh, and do a second career with uh, the SPD. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that might be getting a bit ahead of ourselves when we're still looking at the report and still, still in the very early stages. Uh, there are numbers in the report as far as the proposed staffing model for a Surrey Police Department. And I think when you add them all up, the total sworn officers would be 487, uh, civilians 105. But if looking at officers at 487, do you know how does that compare with the number of officers currently in Surrey? Well, the actual number when they're uh, fully operational, I believe it will be 805 um, Surrey police officers. Uh, Currently, we have 845. So we're going to pay more, plus pay the transition costs for less officers. And in a city that's growing at 12 to 15,000 people per year, and we haven't been hiring, clearly that's wrong. We don't have enough officers now. Why would we be recommending a decrease? Um, If you look at a city by way of example, like Vancouver, they have over 1,400 uh, officers serving uh, the city of Vancouver. Surrey's as big as Vancouver, Richmond, and uh, Burnaby combined geographically and 85% of the population of Vancouver, based on that alone, we should be staffing up probably another 300 members, not putting in a decrease. Uh, even though uh, some of the other numbers in the report, uh, and then it takes a look at, and granted the numbers I believe are from 2017, but it takes a look at crime, uh, violent crime, assault, uh, theft, uh, and the numbers in Vancouver, uh, even though it might not appear this way, the number Vancouver does have a higher crime rate than Surrey. Absolutely. And people oftentimes, you know, refer to Surrey as having a crime problem. Our crime problem, uh, as reported in McLean's magazine uh, not too, too long ago, it showed uh, Vancouver, Abbotsford and Langley as worse off for violent crime than Surrey. So what does that, how does that play into, do you think, uh, the transition or what needs to be the priorities of both the existing force and perhaps a new force? Well, I think what we need to be doing is looking uh, at uh, reducing crime, and Surrey has done some tremendous things in the Wally neighborhood uh, in terms of working with um, uh, folks that uh, are marginalized and getting them housing and doing things like that, having a strong mental health team. Uh, Absolutely phenomenal job um, in doing that piece, and I think we need to be working more around um, early intervention to deal with uh, kids that may be contemplating getting into gang activity, better to deal with them in the prevention mode rather than having to apprehend them or even worse, uh, report to their families that um, they've lost a son or daughter due to gang violence.
So what happens now as far as uh, the report? Again, it's 455 pages. It's out. Uh, You've been calling for more transparency. What happens next as far as you know in this process? Well, what happens next in the process is that a police board is formed. Uh, The city of Surrey uh, has two seats on that board, um, the mayor being one and then one that is chosen by city council. Then the other five members are appointed by the province of British Columbia. So the board will then form and they will then to begin to recruit for a police chief. The other position on council then, how does council decide who that is? Uh, that has come to council already, um, and there was a recommendation made, uh, and we've accepted it, and I believe the mayor has made it public that uh, the selected candidate is Bob Rolls, a former deputy right. chief from Vancouver. All right, and, and your thoughts on that moving forward? Do you think that's going to be a fair uh, process as far as getting the board? I think I'm glad that it's going through the Provincial Resourcing Board. It needs to not be a political uh, board. It needs to be people that have a vested interest in policing in Surrey. We need to have residents on there because, you know, one of the things that's very troubling to me is that there has been no transparency. And yet, in addition to that, there's been more than 42,000 people that have signed a petition to say that they want to keep the RCMP. Those two things alone, we need to make sure that there's transparency and we need to, and I'm still calling for, we need to do a referendum and really find out in the end of the day, what is it Surrey wants? And I think we need to put all the facts on the table and decide whether or not this is going to be a better policing model or not. And right now that's not happening. All right. We will leave it there. Councillor Annis, thank you so much. Always good to have you on the show. Appreciate it, Jill. Thank you. All right. Linda Annis is a Surrey City Councillor. How many times have you been ill, taken some time off work, and had your employer say, you need to provide a doctor's note, we need to know that this was legit, and you went and saw a doctor? It can be a bit onerous, because there are many times where you might take a day, two days, three days, maybe even four days, but you didn't actually go to the doctor. You stayed home. You didn't want to expose anybody else to whatever it was that was ailing you, and you went back to work when you were feeling better. Unfortunately, there might be people out there who take advantage of that system. Maybe they're not really all that sick. Maybe they are not sick at all. Either way, there has been controversy about this in the past. One, when you go to the doctor's office, if you are legitimately ill, there is the chance, the very good possibility, you are exposing other people to your illness. And especially if it's the case that you don't really need to go to the doctor, you know you have a bad cold, you know you have a flu, and you want to stay home and self-isolate until you're better. Well, the BCGEU is calling on employers now to drop the doctor's note requirement amid the COVID-19 virus and the fact that the virus is continuing to spread. Let's bring in Stephanie Smith, the president of the BCGEU, to talk a bit more about this. Stephanie, thanks for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. So what exactly uh, is the union calling for uh, with this? Well, uh, as you mentioned uh, during your opening, what we're asking employers to do is to uh, waive the requirement for employees to provide a doctor's note proving that they're sick. Um, During this time, I mean, now the World Health Organization is saying that COVID-19 is a pandemic. We all have a role to play. Uh, Government has a role to play. Workers have a role to play. And employers have a role to play. Uh, In the case of COVID-19, though, we're also being told that if you are showing symptoms, if you become ill and you think there's even a remote chance that you have been exposed to this virus, that your 
to call ahead first. Don't just show up because you could be exposing people to this, but you are to call ahead and follow the instructions of health officials. Uh, in a case like that, do you think then it would be enough to tell, I mean, if it turns out that you are being tested and you might have it, you'd obviously have to self-isolate and tell your employer. Uh, is it enough to, to simply tell your employer, look, I have these symptoms, I'm going to the doctor or not, leave it at that? Yeah, I, I think, well, I mean, obviously to be tested is important. Um, but, you know, the fact of the matter is to get a doctor's note, I mean, that's a huge administrative amount of time that doctors are spending on filling out these doctor notes. It's one of the reasons why the controversy actually existed prior to COVID-19, but is really highlighted under this pandemic. Doctors should be working with people who are ill, and, and it, it, it's a huge drain on our healthcare system. It costs money. And again, as you mentioned, going to a doctor's office to get a doctor's note exposes people to potentially, um, you know, infection. And we just think this is a really simple step that employers can take. Our members uh, have varying collective agreements with different requirements around, um, you know, doctor's notes. Uh, Our largest employer is the provincial government, and they have waived that requirement. They've proactively done that. They've taken a very positive step forward, and we're calling on all employers to do that, particularly in areas where members or or workers don't have a union that can back them up for making the right decision for themselves, their health, and the health of others. So, and the provincial government has waived that. So in the past, say before COVID-19 even became a thing, say you were sick for three days or four days and you worked for the provincial government and they said you need a doctor's note. If you didn't have one, what would happen to you? Well, I mean, the wording in that particular collective agreement says that an employer may request a doctor's note. Um, again, oftentimes these are tabled by employers in bargaining this sort of language uh, around absentee management. Um, I firmly believe, and I think this is true for uh, any sector, that in fact workers do make responsible decisions around their health and whether or not they should be at work and exposing people to their, their illnesses. Um, I don't think that, you know, writing really, really strict and punitive policy for the small, small number who may, uh, as you mentioned, take advantage of that kind of loophole. There are other ways to, to manage staff and their absenteeism, but I think requiring doctor's notes, um, particularly, again, during issues of community health um, it's everybody's responsibility. We are all responsible for each other's health during this pandemic. And so, um, you know, we need to do the right thing. And did you reach out to uh, any doctors or, or health officials before calling on this and that hearing from them saying it's very onerous on doctors to have to do this? No, we know this. Um, there have been many doctors who have sort of publicly stated uh, how onerous it is for them to be providing doctor's notes for workers who, uh, as you said, may have a cold, may be home. Um, perhaps they had food poisoning the night before and, and are vomiting and are at home for one day, but, you know, 24 hours later, they're feeling fine. They're not going to go to the doctor for that. Why would we send them into the doctor, put that additional cost and expense on our healthcare system? Um, people usually know whether they're feeling capable of going to work or not. And we need to support them in that decision. Um, It's not just about doctor's notes. It's about removing sort of the economic pressure that so many workers face about not being able to miss work because they don't have sick time. They don't get sick pay.
Right. And you mentioned too, so in the provincial government contract, like you said, the wording is may require a doctor's note. But do you know of any scenarios where people have been penalized for not providing one? Yes. I can't get into specifics, of course, but yes, um, in fact, uh, uh, you know, there are some employers, not just within provincial government, but in our other sectors where they are extremely punitive in terms of enforcing a doctor's note coming in. And the language, as I said, is different in different collective agreements. Uh, sometimes it's after, you know, three days absence. Sometimes it's after five days absence. Uh, but some employers want to push it and say, you're away from work sick. We need to have proof that you are away for the right reasons. That, to me, seems, you know, extremely excessive. Especially since a lot of people don't even have doctors and that that then is sending you to a walk-in clinic or, or somewhere to try and find a doctor to give you a note. Absolutely. And oftentimes getting those doctor's notes cost both the individual money, but as I said, it's also a financial strain on our healthcare system. That doctor should be working with patients who are sick and need their support. They shouldn't be filling out forms. Um, is your union doing anything else as far as now with the WHO declaring this a pandemic, which doesn't really change anything as far as how it's being treated and how it's being managed, but we are seeing other places south of the border saying they don't want gatherings of more than 250 people. Uh, I'm imagining there are members of the BCGEU who are in the service industry who would be in scenarios where there are gatherings of, of more than that. Is your union doing anything else as far as protecting people against the virus? Yes. So um, in terms of what we can control internally, uh, interestingly enough, I'm meeting with our senior elected leadership and our senior staff uh, over these two days. This is a regularly scheduled meeting that we have. But we are discussing the potential of making some difficult choices about sort of the, the banquets that we would normally have scheduled, the other sorts of gatherings, the conferences and the forums that we hold. And we're really looking at, you know, how do we put member safety first? And uh, that might entail us having to make some difficult decisions. We're working very closely with employers in a number of our sectors, not just within direct government, as I said, but, um, you know, with the health employers, with our casino employers, um, looking at what steps are they taking to ensure that their staff are remaining safe and how can we support our members and those employers in doing that. And any idea when there might be some decisions made? Well, um, we're going to have that conversation pretty much when I get back downstairs <laughs> to the meeting, um, and we'll probably have a decision this afternoon about whether or not we will um, look at cancelling some of our upcoming events. Um, but uh, I think at this point, you know, we, we don't want people to, we want to remove the pressure that our individual members are feeling about whether or not they can attend, whether or not they have to self-exclude. We want this to be, um, you know, equally accessible to all of our members who were scheduled to come. And so uh, it just might make better sense to postpone them into the future when we know that it's safe for everybody to attend. All right. We will be watching and looking for that update. Uh, Stephanie, thank you so much. I know it's a busy day. Thanks for taking a few minutes with us. Thank you so much, Jill. I appreciate it. All right. Stephanie Smith is the president of the BCGEU. Right now, though, we are going to shift back to one of the other big stories of the day. Harvey Weinstein sentenced to 23 years in a New York state prison for rape and sexual assault. The conviction he was sentenced earlier today. So what does this mean for other cases? And what does this do when we're talking about sexual assault and cases in the courts? Angela Marie McDougall joins me on the line, executive director 
of the Battered Women's Support Services. Angela, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for the opportunity, Jill. Good morning. Uh, what was your first response when you heard that he was sentenced and the sentence is 23 years? Yes. Well, I, uh, maybe some people were surprised, but I wasn't. I, I did think that he was going to get convicted. I mean, it, it, it's, you have to really think about it. You know, there's, so he was only uh, charged with, you know, I think, six offenses and, and then convicted of two. Uh, there were 100 accusers and uh, over you know, multiple decades. Uh, and so we sort of, and, and, and the laws, the laws governing sexual assault are so narrow. So uh, what what we have, I guess, is the best case scenario. Uh, for what are truly uh, just horrific circumstances, not just in terms of his behavior, but the criminal system more more broadly. And I know we're talking about the United States, but Canada is uh, has some a lot of similarities. Uh, because is is it fair to say that part of the reason that a lot of women don't come forward, not only is it that women know should their case go to trial, they are going to be put through a horrific scenario of having to relive what happened and relive the, the what it is uh, that they're alleging, uh, but also the conviction rate is extremely low. Yes, uh, that is the conviction rate is extraordinary. Though I, I believe it's around two percent for those cases that are brought uh, that do make it to to the criminal system most cases uh, don't get past the police as we know from various reports the police you know and, and uh, you know more historically but certainly recently where police are de- deeming reports unfounded so it doesn't even make it uh, to the crown to even consider whether charges uh, yeah so it's a it's a very uh, very very difficult uh, area of, of, of the legal system. And of course, we know how endemic and how much of an epidemic uh, sexual violence is. So uh, the number of survivors uh, that actually take the risk to even talk to police is very narrow, very small. Uh, and then for those cases that end up in a, in a criminal proceeding, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's um, negligible compared to the, the amount of sexual violence that, that exists in, in, in Canada and other places in the world. Do you think a, a, an outcome like this with a conviction and now what is essentially a life sentence for yeah. Weinstein? Uh, I, I mean, this was an extreme case. We're talking about this huge Hollywood mogul and, and the right. people involved uh, in some, in a lot of the accusers uh, were well-known people. But will that, do you think, make a difference in empowering women to come forward and letting women know that it is possible to have justice? So we've been working for a long time, uh, you know, with those that have been working to end gender violence and violence against women, uh, to uh, to look at what justice means and to and so what we have, we, we want to have a really broad definition of, of justice, and that then the criminal system is just one 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 avenue. Not every uh, survivor is going. Every woman's going to want to tell her story, go public in that way. So justice has, uh, you know, we, we want to have a, a lot of uh, definitions of justice. Now, when we're talking about, uh, you know, those women that, that are considering the criminal system, uh, I think for all of us, we are, uh, you know, it's, it's a day to rejoice, <laughs> you know, quite frankly. Uh, and, but it also, because it was a result of survivors' voices, it was the result of survivors, uh, you know, thousands of survivors sharing their stories through social media, uh, mostly, and, uh, you know, through various hashtags, including Me Too, uh, and, you know, and then the media reports, uh, and then some very, you know, some, so it was been really survivor-driven, and that is ultimately what I think that we rejoice in, is, uh, is the power of, of, of survivors' voices and, and women speaking our truth and, uh, and joining together 
Uh, and so I think in that way, this case, as well as some others before him, you know, that were, um, and has, is shifting culture, but it's slow. These are, these are things that are very, 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 very resistant to change. Uh, Weinstein himself uh, has maintained the entire time that anything that happened was consensual. He said that the whole Me Too movement is now, it's now almost trapping men who haven't done anything wrong and it's, and it's, uh, and it's taking down innocent men. Are you surprised at all by his, his maintenance of innocence and those comments? No, I'm not surprised because I think, uh, and of course he's not the only one that's made those comments. It's, uh, it is a, it is certainly a, a refrain that uh, you know that we, we we hear here and there, uh, and you know and this is uh, not you can it's kind of expe- except um, what's that word? It's kind of uh, um, you know we can see that this would happen because we're challenging power. We're you know we're talking about sexual violence, talking about patriarchy, talking about uh, you know the gender dynamics and 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 uh, and hierarchies. Uh, so we're you know, we're really confronting some well worn paths about the myths of. Uh, that women bring it on ourselves, and so uh, I think that this the, the responses are uh, to be expected. Uh, and it, uh, but however, nobody's nobody's buying it. Uh, for the most part, I think the culture has shifted and recognizing this is a big problem, and that men are are need to be accountable for their behavior, for some things that have been cultural norms. So we're shifting those norms, and and I've talked to many men who are examining their behavior as a result of this, you know, they're, they're thinking about themselves, they're thinking about their families, they're thinking about their fathers and their friends. And, and this is exactly the kind of cultural shift that, that we seek. And so, uh, he, of course, he's, uh, you know, he, he hasn't come to that, uh, that reckoning, uh, Harvey Weinstein, uh, but certainly other men are, and certainly the culture is. And, uh, and, and we've still got a long, long, long way to go, but these are some big shifts that we're seeing uh, in part due to this case. It's interesting that you mentioned that because, uh, and this case is really considered, I think, the beginning of the Me Too movement and, and with, the, with the numbers and what we really saw with the numbers coming forward, like you said, on social media after the stories about Harvey Weinstein started to materialize. I remember having a conversation with a man at the, at the time when it was just starting to really take off and, and he was flabbergasted saying, well, there's just so many women. This can't be true. This can't right. be happening because there's just too many. There's no way that this is possible. And I remember kind of shaking my head thinking, I don't know how to fight against that argument when, when yes, there are this many women. Yes, it is true. But, but these are men who, these aren't perpetrators. These are, these are just men. And I think he, he like many men, thought, thought, well, this can't possibly be true. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Uh, just how normalized sexual violence is. It's, it's rendered invisible except for those who survive it. So what, what Me Too has done, it's drawn, shone a light on it. And so I think for many, uh, you know, we're, well, you know maybe, the, maybe for the men you're referring to, and I, I've talked to lots of men who have said similar things, uh, it, it's, a, it's a wake-up call and a, and a reckoning for, uh, you know, for, for some very serious flaws in our, in our, in our culture, in our society. And, uh, and that's the thing about change, is that initially people are surprised.
this this case as well deals with a lot of the accusations and well not accusations now because they he was convicted but but what happened here happened in many cases several years ago we've had other examples though more recently just in the past couple of years uh, i think of the one where the young uh, indigenous girl was being questioned by a police officer with highly inappropriate questions after she came to police with uh, saying she had been sexually assaulted there have been numerous cases where clearly there is still a long way to go. So how do we tackle that? Yeah, so this is about the victim blaming that uh, is uh, so, so inherent in in the way that sexual violence is framed. Uh, and so that is, you know, that the victim blaming is the the, the idea that, the, that somehow the, the, the victim, the survivor is partially or entirely at fault for the harm that is, you know, that befell them. And so we, that's what we've been seeking to redress for a long time is this, the myth, you know, in that case that you talk about with the, with the youth uh, who was in the care of the, you know, the, the Ministry of Child and, and Family Development here in British Columbia, who was be brave enough to tell her story of sexual violence to, uh, you know, a Kelowna RCMP and, and his response was appalling. And so the, there's a long, 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 long history of, of, you know, rape myth acceptance. And, um, you know, and, and that just leads to victim blaming. And so this uh, Me Too has provided a, a very important and very public opportunity for us all to uh, gain awareness and to examine behavior. Uh, but we're not done by any stretch. Uh, and the criminal system is only one measure of, of what, you know, we, you know, until there is no sexual violence, that's when you know, until until nobody is afraid to walk outside at night, or nobody is afraid to, to you know that they're that that they're going to experience sexual violence on a date. Uh, until that happens, where we've got a lot, we've got a long way to go. Do you think progress is being made? I do, I do. Uh, uh, we have a, it's, it's the awareness, and we're, and we're seeing little bits of behavior change. I mean, I think that's what uh, you know what what we're seeing, like with you know with that man that you talked about, and the men that I know, and. Uh, and then, of course, all the survivors, you know, you know, going public with their stories, coming out from the, you know, the shadows of this very personal and individual experience. Those are that's that's the change. That's the beginning of change. I mean, the behavior changes haven't happened entirely yet, but uh, you know, the first part is awareness, and uh, and and we are, uh, you know, to be you you know, <laughs> sexual violence. I mean, it, the, the the rape shield laws didn't come into effect until very very early, uh, you know, in the in 1980s. And so, you know, sexual violence hasn't really been uh, recognizing within the criminal system, let alone the culture. So we've, it's a very recent phenomenon, us talking about, about this publicly and having services and, uh, and media, co- you know, covering stories such as this. So uh, it were very, it's only maybe 40 years, probably less. So that, uh, you know, if we think about the progress we've made in just 40 years, I would say we're doing not too, not too shabby, but of course we're not going to stop. We have a long way to go still. All right. We will leave it there. Uh, Angela, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. All the best. All right. You too. That is Angela Marie McDougall, Executive Director of the Battered Women's Support Services.
Well, no matter where you live, you probably pay attention to the property taxes, uh, how much they go up every year, if they go up every year. There was a big story just a few weeks ago when Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, put the news out that the property taxes in that city were going to go up, I believe it was 0.48%, and had a lot of people questioning, well, why can't that be the increase or the amount in every other municipality and city? And we're talking about this now because at Vancouver City Hall today, the issue of not raising taxes more than 5%, limiting the property tax rate increase is on hand. And joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Sarah Kirby-Young, who is a Vancouver City Councillor. Councillor, thanks so much for taking some time with us. Happy to do so. Thanks for having me. Uh, What exactly is being discussed today? Because this was something that was first raised, the idea of capping it at no more than 5%. It was raised, I think, back in February. Uh, This is a motion that Council will be considering this afternoon, which is brought forward by Mayor Kennedy Stewart to cap the property tax increase at no more than 5% for next year. Um, But I think that the motion is tone deaf and it's not listening to Vancouverites. We've received an overwhelming amount of correspondence, dozens of emails coming into Council, and I have not seen a single email in support of this motion. Well, it it seems like a strange number because it wasn't that long ago the residents of Vancouver were told your taxes are going up 4.2, and this was a few years ago. But even then, that was deemed a very big increase, and people weren't happy about that. Then residents were told it's going to be 8.2. No, wait, we've got it back down to 7. So to say that it's not going to be more than 5, 5 is still a pretty big increase for people. It's a big increase. It's much higher than the rate, the consumer price index or the rate of inflation. It's higher than people are receiving in terms of salary increases if they're lucky enough to get one. Um, It's cumulative and people are feeling the impacts of that. We're seeing more people deferring their taxes. Uh, And I think that what is not happening here, um, and we've been asking for myself and my fellow MPA counselors, is a call to go back and really sincerely look at the expenses of the city and see where we have opportunities for efficiencies. And this council has refused to do that. And I think when we're hearing loud and clear from the public that this is not sustainable, it's not affordable. Um, We had the mayor and Councillor Carr that spoke out very strongly at the beginning of the 2020 budget process in support of higher increases when we're looking at almost 10% at that point. Um, You know, it was 8.2, 8.9, 10%. And they said they thought that was fine. Now we have the mayor suggesting 5 no more than five. And when asked how did he determine that, he said it was a bit of a finger in the wind exercise. Well, when I last time I checked, budgeting when you're responsible for the finances of a major city like Vancouver needs to be a lot more um, responsible, a lot more detailed than that. And I think the citizens of Vancouver deserve us to look at our expenses. We haven't done that yet. Have you looked at when you say that uh, what would be better would be to go back and look at different areas and see where there are areas where there could be cost efficiencies? Have you had a chance to do that or see any areas where you think that's possible? We've asked repeatedly to go back and do that and have a genuine exercise to look at what are the core functions that the city has to deliver according to the Vancouver Charter and what citizens expect. And what do those add up to as a baseline? Um, And then what is it that the city wants to do on top of that? So think about things like fire, police, running your libraries, community centers, parks and recreation, the things that citizens and residents um, taking care of your streets, your garbage collection pickup really value and they expect the city government to do. Um, And let's do zero-based budgeting. Look at that, say what are those numbers, and then what do we need to, to do in addition to address the priorities the most important priorities in the city of Vancouver. So dealing with things like housing, affordability, and homelessness. Um, and what's the city's role in those? And unfortunately, and I'm, I'm hoping um, that we'll, 
we'll get some movement this afternoon and that uh, the rest of council will start listening to the public because people simply cannot afford these multifold increases that are above the cost of living. They can't. And I think you you raised the point that my guess is you're hearing this in the correspondence you're getting from residents of Vancouver is talking about those basic services. And like you said, it's garbage pickup, it's park maintenance, it's street maintenance. You've been very vocal talking about sidewalks in the past. It almost seems, and I think that the, one of the messages that we hear from people too, and when we open up the phone lines, is people feel like in some cases, council has lost direction and instead is going after things that is not in the council's jurisdiction. And, and I think that's I think that's true. I think there's a role of advocacy that's really important for this council to play, such as on homelessness. It's critical. We need to deal with that file. It's really important. We cannot do that alone in specific government. We need the support of the provincial and federal governments. But what is appropriate in terms of Vancouver? And if we decide that's a priority and the city has a role to play and we have to put funding towards that, what are we not doing? because we have to deliver all the basic services and deal with some of these core crises. Those are the conversations that this council has not been willing to have yet. So how do you get council to have that conversation? Well, I think you keep the pressure up. I think the fact the mayor has brought this motion forward shows that he honestly was feeling the pressure from residents. Um, People were really vocal and really appalled that council supported a higher increase. I didn't. I and my colleagues voted against it. Um, but the mayor did support it. Um, he's now brought this, I think. Um, but I think he's not—he's not hearing the feedback fully. I'm looking at some of these emails I'm getting now, and it's comments like appalled and angry. My increases have exceeded 20% over the last um, over the last four years. Um, I'm a senior. Um, I don't know how I'm going to continue to. Um, who loves Vancouver? I'm distressed. I don't know how I can afford to live here anymore. I mean, it, this goes on. I could keep going through and reading you some of these comments, but. It's a very, very consistent line of feedback, and it's really important that we listen to the residents. They're speaking, and they're speaking loud and clear. Uh, you mentioned people deferring taxes as well, because does it not kind of, at, at some point, if you keep raising the taxes, not you yourself, but if the taxes keep going up, up, and up, people who are in the position to defer are going to defer. Does that not, in turn, bring in less revenue for the city? Um, we, you are going to start to, I really think, significantly see those impacts if those numbers go up significantly and, and they're deferred, then, yeah, that does that does place a burden on people. But it also means that people are in that stressful position that they're eroding the, any equity that they have managed to build up by working hard um, and paying those taxes all their lives. And I, and I feel for people, especially folks that are on fixed incomes. Um, so you're, I mean, are you going to be hearing from the public today? Uh, we do have, I believe there are a couple of speakers today. Um, there are not as many as I would like to see. We certainly did get a lot of emails and letters that came in. Um, but I think that council will move into debate and decision on this this afternoon. Um, I personally will not, uh, don't support a 5% increase. I, it's, it's the wrong way to go to pick a number from a finger in the wind, as the mayor said. Um, what we need to do is go back and look at what our expenses are and find efficiencies. And with a $1.4 billion operating budget, I am confident that with the will of council, we can find those. Uh, it's also a Wednesday afternoon. I would imagine a lot of the people that take issue with this and have concerns about this are busy at work today. They're at work trying to pay their bills and feed their families. Absolutely. Of course they are. Uh, just looking at the budget, and I, I'm not picking on any one particular thing or, or, or not. I mean, the budget document that I'm looking at is is more than 600 pages long and not expecting that, that somebody's going to go home and read word for word on that. But even little things like under the arts and culture facilities, and nobody's suggesting that arts and culture is not important. Of course it is. Uh, but one of the, the 
budget lines is the relocation of the Vancouver Archives from Vanier Park to the Central Library with a price tag of $16 million, which I get in the grand scheme of the budget that's a drop, but $16 million is still $16 million, and it seems like a lot of money. Uh, it is a lot of money, and I think that, uh, and I do believe in, in sort of retaining our heritage, but I think that some of those conversations we can have also are around timing of some of the work and capital projects. You just raised one example, um, but work can also be phased and paced. In order to achieve a 1% savings in the actual tax increase to residents, that equates to about 8 or $9 million. So the example that you've just raised, by deferring that work to a different year or, or looking at opportunities to save on some other capital projects, could... Uh, and, and there is different funding sources for capital, so it's important to say that. You know, capital is this is a separate budget from operating. But every 8 or $9 million that we can identify as savings equates to a 1% saving in property tax across the board. Which, I guess, a lot of people that won't be able to make the meeting today would be very pleased if that savings could be found. I am, I am confident that, I, that we can find it if there's a will of council to do that. Um, however, um, having sat on this council for just a, a year, almost a year and a half now, um, this council has not been willing to take sort of that serious look and to prioritize and make cho- tough choices, and that's what needs to happen. All right. Well, we will uh, wait and see what happens, so what comes out of the meeting this afternoon. Uh, Councillor Kirby Young, thanks so much for your time. Thanks. Always a pleasure. All right. Uh, that is Sarah Kirby Young, a Vancouver City Councillor. They will be talking about that this afternoon. Well, something we have been talking about on the program, uh, I've been covering this, I think, as far back as January. And that is when we first started hearing from strata councils, hearing from people on those councils saying, hey, something is up with the insurance. We are getting estimates of our renewal being very higher, much higher than it has been in the past. In some cases, it was coming from buildings where there had been no claims. They were relatively new, just a couple of years old. If they could find insurance, that was. In one case, said the building, the broker, I believe, found 18 different companies that together were willing to insure the building. The deductible went from about $5,000 up to $150,000, and the insurance itself cost a whole lot more. So we've been talking a lot about strata corporations and the condominium market and how that has been negatively impacted in many cases. But what about the rental market? We're talking about rental buildings and rental housing, because a lot of those buildings in BC are older probably do have some claims. What are landlords saying about the issues with insurance and renewing insurance? Well, let's bring in David Hutniak, who is the CEO of Landlord BC. David, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for reaching out, Jill. Uh, Is this also having an impact on the rental market? Yeah, in terms of uh, purpose-built rental buildings, uh, absolutely. Um, no, certainly not to the same scale as uh, the increases we're seeing on stratas or some of the stratas, uh, although that impacts you know, the uh, larger rental universe as well. But if we're talking purpose-built rental buildings, the traditional apartment buildings that you just referenced, you know, we, we were seeing sort of uh, incremental increases, you know, 10 15% for the last handful of years. And, and uh, what we're hearing from our members is... Uh, you know, 30% seems to be a pretty common number in terms of sort of average increases, and obviously it, it varies from there. So it's uh, definitely having an impact, in addition to other costs, I might add. So it's a, kind of a double whammy. Uh, so what does a landlord do in that scenario? If you're looking at a 30% increase in your insurance, but you still uh, have to abide by the rules as far as how much you can raise the rent, it's not as though you can pass that on, not that, that renters would want that, but how do, what does a, a landlord do then in that scenario? 
Sure. I mean, this is the thing. It, it's, you know, we live in a rent control environment and we have, uh, you know, had some uh, c- uh, cutbacks in terms of the maximum allowable increase to CPI only. So it's hugely challenging in the sense that we can't pass that increased cost on. Um, and uh, so, you know, obviously as a landlord, then uh, with one of these buildings, you need to look at, you know, where else can you cut costs and, uh, and uh, you know, the first thing that you probably will look at is, you know, perhaps you'll defer some uh, additional investments that you were contemplating, uh, you know, push that old boiler a little out to another couple of years, etc. So, you know, these are hard decisions, but, uh, you know, those uh, those are the things that we're, uh, our sector is broadly looking at in terms of, again, those, those purpose-built rental buildings. And not to suggest people should be without insurance, but do rental buildings fall under the same jurisdiction of, because for strata councils, condominiums, they have to, by law, have insurance. Are rental buildings in that same scenario? Well, it's... It's not necessarily by law, but it's, it's I mean, clearly you, you're not going to get financing uh, if you don't have insurance in your building. And obviously, from a pure risk management perspective, you would have, you know, huge liabilities, not just for the physical asset, but you've got, you know, your your tenants that uh, for whom you're providing the housing. So it's, insurance is clearly, you know, essential, and it's not just for the physical asset, it's liability insurance, et cetera. So, uh, you know, our sector, uh, certainly, like I said, compared to some of the horror stories we're hearing about uh, uh, condos, uh, stratas, and, and remember, uh, as uh, I knew you noticed, Joe, that uh, disproportionately, uh, you know, rental housing is provided by sort of that secondary market in British Columbia, and uh, condos are a key source of that rental housing. So landlords who are providing rental housing through stratas and, and condos, I mean, they're being hit particularly hard. Um, in terms of someone with a purpose-built rental building, in, in particular, you know, if it had uh, have a sort of a, a number of buildings, sort of a portfolio. I mean, we've been working with our sector over the last handful of years in terms of really encouraging what we call risk, uh, risk management. So that's really looking at uh, your physical assets, you know, what can you do to mitigate uh, claims? And uh, because at the end, of the end of the day, that's what's, you know, a lot of what's driving this is that the insurers have had, uh, you know, from their perspective, excessive claims, uh, flood damage, etc. So our sector, we, we you know, where the buildings are professionally managed, etc. And so uh, we, we try to try to manage that risk as much as possible. And that's why, you know, you're not going to be hearing about 300% increases in a, for a purpose-built rental building. But, but you know, 30% is a huge number and, and very, very harmful. And certainly when you add it down to increased property taxes, utilities, etc., it's just... It's a very challenging environment right now. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Is it different as well, though, when we're talking about somebody in a condominium scenario, and if it's the owner of a condominium and and having a mortgage, you have to have insurance. Is it different when we're talking about a rental scenario where if somebody chooses not to and doesn't have insurance but causes damage to the building, does it leave the landlord then that the landlord not only is paying a higher cost for the insurance for the building, is then having to deal with a renter that is underinsured? Well, yeah, I mean, certainly in the context of our members, you know, we have a proprietary uh, tenancy agreement that they have access to. And in that form, uh, you know, where uh, the landlord is is, uh, asking the tenant uh, to secure um, tenant insurance. Now, the the main issue there is actually more liability and contents protection versus, you know, uh, some coverage for for the, the broader asset. But uh, it's something that we're going to have to look at more carefully because basically, 
uh, you know, it's up to the individual landlord. It's it's uh, the it's a condition of the tenancy agreement. Uh, if the tenant chooses not to not to get uh, you know get that insurance, I think some landlords have perhaps not necessarily pursued that aggressively in the context of the tenancy agreement. But I think you know we're we're entering a, sort of a new a new era here, and with these costs really increasing. Uh, it's going to be an issue, and I certainly would say the smaller landlord in Estrada, you know, they should really pay much more attention to that. And what about the, the bigger buildings in that the companies and developers that have in the past been uh, going forward with these projects? Is this going to deter, do you think, uh, companies from doing that, knowing that the insurance cost is going to be one more added cost and, and a cost that could potentially keep going up every year? Well, sure. I mean, you know, it, it's you know, it, there's a whole lot of factors that influence, A, whether you're going to continue to operate as a landlord, and B, whether you're going to build new rental housing. So, you know, when you're, if you're looking at uh, building new rental housing here, purpose-built rental uh, specifically, you're looking at the legislative framework, you're looking at the, the cost to acquire land and to, and to build, and the, how long it takes to get a permit, which is, you know, so all these factors uh when you're doing your pro forma to figure out whether or not you can afford to do this or whether you can get the money from the pension fund to, to build it are all come into the equation. So we have, you know, I mean, we have seen some seeing, we are seeing rental being built, but you know, we in talking to the development community, it's, it's increasingly challenging and, and uh, you know, they are looking at other jurisdictions, unfortunately. And a lot of that is driven by some of the concerns in terms of uh, from a legislative framework um, and, and the issues around getting approvals within cities and municipalities, uh, probably more so than insurance. But you know, it's it's everything adds up, and and you have to make a business decision. This this issue is really, I think, more specific to existing landlords. I mean, these are the guys who, you know, have existing tenants. They're sub- subject to uh, the maximum allowable increase, and their their costs are going up exponentially. And uh, so, you know. This is, this is when it becomes a greater challenge to say, well, you know, how do I continue to operate? And particularly, you know, if you're, you're a smaller landlord, it's, uh, you know, you have less uh, financial capacity to absorb these sorts of, uh, of situations. So it's, uh, you know, it's not good for us as landlords. And obviously, while renters are l- largely protected with, uh, with the rent controls, you know, uh, in terms of the broader sort of rental universe, uh, you know, we we need to be concerned about this, and and we feel that you know, uh, policymakers need to be uh, more sensitive to the challenges that our sector is facing. Um, you know, landlords don't get a lot of sympathy, but you know, we provide uh, you know uh, five hundred thousand plus units of housing in the province, thirty percent of BC households. Like, I mean. We need to be uh, viable. Uh, otherwise, you know, it, uh, the, the implications are pretty significant. Oh, absolutely. And you kind of touched on this. Uh, but, but do you think, is it is it going out too far to say that it will lead or it could lead to landlords not doing repairs or not doing as much upkeep? I mean, on the one hand, you think you might want to do that more to make sure yeah. you don't have a claim and things are, are good. But on the other hand, if you don't have the money to do it. Well, I, I, you know, you're going to take care. You're going to ensure that there's no floods, et cetera. Then that, that, that's basic maintenance and risk mitigation. But what I'm saying is, you know, uh, we we would like to see additional investment in energy efficiency and and uh, you know maybe replace that uh, those windows and building envelope and those sorts of investments and and a, and a new boiler. I mean, those are things that. Uh, you know, you know, are not going to uh, necessarily uh, result in uh, in higher uh, higher incidence of insurance claims, but 
you know, those are huge capital investments. If you're in a position where, you know, your overall operating costs are increasing exponentially, those, those sorts of decisions, those sorts of investments are going to, you know, be deferred or fall by the wayside. But no, you're absolutely right. There's no, it would make no sense to, to, to not uh, ensure that the you know the the, the core maintenance and uh, you know of of the plumbing and electrical etc to mitigate uh, any additional uh, uh, you know uh, events or claims is critically important. Those those will need to happen, but it's the it's the other investments I'm I'm talking about. All right. So interesting. Uh, another uh, part of this story which continues on. David Hutniak, thank you so much uh, for your time. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks again for reaching out. Take care. All right. David Hutniak is the CEO of Landlord BC. Shift gears a little bit and talk about something a little bit more fun. Money, but in a fun way. So Claire Allen, a CKNW contributor, has joined me in studio. Uh, I didn't realize this until you brought it up, that uh, today's the day if you want to vote for what the next $5 bill is going to look like. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. So you have until the end of the day today to cast your vote or to nominate an iconic Canadian who will appear on the next $5 banknote. And, you know, we did this a couple weeks ago, maybe even a couple months ago now, uh, where we asked people about who they think should be nominated. And we'll get to that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But one person in our community in Metro Vancouver is hoping that an individual, a very famous individual, <laughs> will make it onto the $5 bill. And that is Mayor Brad West. He's the mayor of Port Coquitlam. And he's hoping that you will log on to the website today, bankofcanada.ca, and cast your vote for Port Coquitlam hero and Canadian hero, I would argue, Terry Fox. So I'm encouraging not only Port Coquitlam residents, but British Columbians and Canadians, in fact, to take a few minutes out of their day and to go to the Bank of Canada's website and put in a nomination for Terry Fox to be on the next $5 bill. I think that Terry Fox is a role model for all of us and really embodies everything it means to be a Canadian. And he's someone who has inspired millions of people, not only in this country, but around the world. I mean, it's, it's just amazing that there are actually Terry Fox runs that happen in countries all over the world. And so in, in, in every, you know, corner of our earth, uh, there are Terry Fox runs. And so such an inspirational figure. And of course, in Port Coquitlam, we could not be more proud to be uh, his hometown. And so we're really encouraging people who agree with us that he would be a great choice uh, to take a few minutes and to put in the nomination for Terry. He makes a good point. Have mm-hmm. you ever heard anybody say anything bad about Terry Fox? Can't How could you? How could you? And if you did, you'd think what you'd What's call them out on you? it. Exactly, yeah. call them kind of out. Evil lives in your heart. Um, <laughs> exactly. So Mayor West, I asked him, like, is this something you've been hearing a lot from your constituents, from people of Port Coquitlam that they've been coming up to you and saying, you know, Fox for the five or stuff like that? <laughs> he said, actually, you know what? He's been hearing from people across the country uh, who support Terry Fox being on the new five dollar bill. I've had hundreds of Canadians reach out to me and share their stories. Uh, share their stories of being inspired by Terry. And it's been interesting because a lot of those people were people who watched Terry on their television when he did his marathon of hope and and remember it so clearly and, and you know, can communicate that to me and, you know, articulate kind of what it was like to, to watch him and, and how it made them feel. But just as interesting has been the the young people who've reached out to me who like me, weren't born uh, when Terry did his Marathon of Hope, but who have connected with Terry still because of 
his story and participating in the Terry Fox run. And I just think that that's such an incredible legacy that Terry Fox has, has left for us. And it's one that continues to inspire people, not only in Canada, but across the world to continue his cause and to participate in Terry Fox runs and to raise money for cancer research. And and I just don't think you can beat that. I I just think that that puts him in such a unique category and and it really speaks to why he's the the perfect choice to be on the $5 bill. So I think he makes a great point. I can't really, after talking to Mayor West, I mean, I had a couple of people that I wanted to see on the $5 bill, but I really do feel like Terry Fox is the ideal candidate. Right. And, you know, Porco Quitlam is not alone. They launched mm-hmm. a campaign to sort of uh, motivate people to vote for Terry Fox, but also the city of Thunder Bay passed a resolution backing Terry Fox for the honor. And so I thought that was great. Obviously, support right across the country, mm-hmm. as his Marathon of Hope went right across the country. And um, in December, I hit the streets and asked people who they would like to see on the new $5 bill. And Terry is in, in the montage. <laughs> a lot of people mentioned him. Uh-huh. But we also got some other interesting answers. Who would you like to see on the Canadian $5 bill? Probably a popular opinion, but I think it should be Terry Fox. I've said to people before that I'm going to do my very best to make it. I'm not going to give up, and that's true. But I might not make it, and if I don't make it, the marathon of hope better continue. He's a Canadian icon, and through his legacy, he has inspired so many others to never give up against their fight against cancer, and has also raised millions of dollars for cancer research. I would like to see Haley Wickenheiser on the new Canadian $5 bill. It was the greatest honour of my life to play for Canada, and I will never forget the time I had. Because all she's done for women in sports in Canada, especially for young girls in hockey. David Suzuki because of his climate change activism. Who would you like to see on the Canadian $5 bill? I'm going to give you two answers. I'm going to do uh, one deceased, and I'm going to say Emily Carr, and one living, and this would be in a dream world, Joni Mitchell. Don't it always seem to go That you don't know what you've got till it's gone They pay for it, I put up a parking lot Who would you vote for to appear on the new Canadian $5 bill? Mike Myers. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, baby! (laughs) Who would you like to see on the Canadian $5 bill? Harjit Sajjan because he's Canada's first Sikh Minister of National Defence and the first Sikh Canadian to command a Canadian Army Reserve Regiment. Yeah. I would pick Drake. He is a very influential, proud Canadian artist that has paved the way for many other young Canadian artists to break into the industry. Who would you like to see on the Canadian $5 bill? Nardwar the Human Serviette. Keep on rocking in the free world and do 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 do. I would pick Rick Hansen because he's what true Canadians are all about. It's symbolic of um, what man can do uh, when he believes in something, uh, when he works together as a team, and of course perseveres over time. And that's what our tour is all about. He attained goals like no other. He made you feel that you could achieve any goal, no matter if you were fully body-abled or in a wheelchair like himself. To me, he is Mr. Canada. Nardwar. Or Nardwar on the $5 bill anytime soon. But nice right. to know that they live in some Canadian hearts. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So, Jill, 
aside from Terry Fox, which I feel bad even ta- saying, su- suggesting some other names, but who would you like oh, to Terry. see? I, you know, I've been thinking, I even pulled out the old, the current $5 yes. bill with, the, as you called him, Willie, <laughs> <laughs> Willie Laurier, Willie Laurier on it. Sir Wilfred Laurier. <laughs> yes. And the Canada arm on the back, which, you know, had that been a trivia question, I would not have got that. I would not have got the Canada arm on the back. Doing I would not have remembered. made me realize how I really, I don't carry a lot of cash, no. so I'm not familiar with who's on the, who are on the bills. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I should have been thinking about this during the montage. I can't think of anybody that would be better than, than Terry Fox. I know. He is perfect. I will say that another person that I like as a nominee would be uh, Frederick Banting. He is the Canadian who invented insulin mm. and he won a Nobel Prize for that. Oh, that's pretty good too. And I believe that he didn't, like he was a, he released the patent. Like he didn't uh, keep it for himself right. and collect the riches. I believe that's right, but I, I, I'm not entirely <laughs> sure. But it doesn't matter because I think Terry Fox is going to clinch it. I think he's going to be on the $5 bill. However, this process is not... Not simple. It's not simple. And it's not going to be like, oh, he's, we voted for him. He won. Here Here's the bill. No, no. So it goes to uh, an advisory council, and then it goes to a public opinion and historical research, and then it goes to a short list, and then there's the final decision, which uh, the finance minister will make in accordance with the Bank of Canada Act. And then it will be announced by the finance minister, and then they go to the design process. So wow. I don't know how long this is going to take, but from going through these five steps, this isn't going to be like next week. Guys. No, 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 no T Fox next no, week. No Fox on the Fiverr next week. <laughs> but uh, but I I think you know Terry. From hearing from what Brad West had to say, and looking back at you know the clips of him uh, in preparation for this segment, and thinking about the impact that he's had on our lives and how we view and talk about cancer now, I really think that he is the ideal person to be on the five dollar bill. We shall wait and see. That's a lengthy process, and people can still vote. Today's the last day. Yes, today is the last day. So if you'd like to cast your vote or you'd like to nominate somebody, um, you should go to bankofcanada.ca. You can find the link there. It's quite prominent on their page. Uh, to vote for the new $5 bill. All right, sounds good. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. That is Claire Allen, CKNW contributor. All right, we've been talking about how various places are taking measures to stop the spread of spread of COVID-19 south of the border in several counties, no longer allowing gatherings of more than 250 people. There are discussions underway in BC about doing the same. And in Denmark, after seeing the biggest number of new cases in a single day, that country is also taking new measures. And joining us on the line is Shane Woodford, who now lives and works in Denmark. He's a former CKNW reporter. Shane, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, it's good to hear your voice, Jill. How are you? Uh, very well. Uh, we saw you, uh, I think you tweeted this out, uh, some new information. So what exactly is going to be happening in Denmark? Yeah, there's a press conference that's actually still going on as we speak involving uh, various senior health officials in the Danish government, including Denmark's Prime Minister, Meta Frederiksen. Uh, she's a day removed from making some pretty big changes. And today they went to essentially a phase two uh, which is some pretty major, major stuff. She's warning of dire consequences, including economically to the country. Uh, but the bottom line here is, Jill, is they're looking at the numbers and they're saying the quarantine of inbound travelers from infected countries has essentially failed. And the coronavirus is now circulating in Denmark independently of being brought in from outside. Uh, as you mentioned, we're now at 513 cases up from uh, 262 yesterday. Uh, They're hitting the alarm button. They're completely radically altering their strategy. Uh, And as of Friday, it is a sweeping public service sector shutdown in Denmark. So every single public service sector employee is being told to stay home 
with the exception of critical infrastructure. So that would be your police, your healthcare workers, and especially people who are working with seniors who, of course, as we know, are the most vulnerable population. Uh, this also is going to include schools, Jill. So they're saying to students out there, university, high school, daycares, they're saying, we want you all to stay home. That said, they are going to keep some schools open because they're saying that there may be parents out there with no child care option. So they want to have a school open to take those. But as of Friday, uh, some pretty major sweeping changes in Denmark for at least the next two weeks. Hmm, interesting. Uh, interesting that they've taken such a different course. Do you know or was there any idea given with this big spike in the number of cases since yesterday? Is that a is it at a care home or, or are there anything? Are they linked to each other? No, they're they're in little pockets throughout the country. I've seen uh, stuff in Aarhus, which is in sort of the bigger piece of Denmark and in, in Jutland. Uh, I know there's a lot of stuff going on in Zealand, which is the smaller island where Copenhagen is located. Uh, I know that uh, workers here on the island of Foon, where I live, have been told that uh, it's a little bit more rural here, uh, have been told the coronavirus is inbound and they're expecting it to arrive here within the week. Uh, so it is all over the country. And basically, um, in holding this press conference, Meta Fredrickson, the Prime Minister, has said flat out, like, listen, we have done the modeling. Um, we're looking at this thing. We're looking at the numbers explosion. And we think that if this continues unabated, that our healthcare infrastructure here in Denmark will be completely overrun. Uh, we're hearing stories out of Italy, for example, of hospitals that are at 150, at 200% of capacity. Uh, you know, I'm seeing tweets and Facebook posts from people in that area and healthcare workers saying that they're making, you know, like battle frontline trauma decisions. We can't treat this person. This person has the best chance to survive. We're going to do that. Resources are stretched to the breaking point. And uh, here in Denmark, they're looking at what's going on in Italy. And they're saying, listen, all the ingredients are here to see a repeat. And we desperately want to avoid that. So with the changes that that we just discussed, um, they're hoping to sort of elongate the curve instead of having a a sharp explosion and peak and increase and overwhelm the system. They're hoping to kind of buy some time and flatten the curve to a a level where the healthcare system can process it at a slower rate. And have there been any deaths in Denmark? No. Uh, There's two uh, coronavirus patients that are in critical condition, uh, another eight that are serious. We so far have not seen a death in Denmark. That said, Joel, uh, as of about 20 minutes ago, Sweden just reported their first coronavirus death. Hmm. Uh, and interesting you mentioned, too, because it was a couple of days ago, wasn't it, that Denmark put in big restrictions on flights? And as you said, that was brought up in the news conference that that, that taking that step, which many might have thought was quite drastic, didn't work. Yeah, they've uh, they moved to ban flights and coming to what they call red zone areas. So Italy would be one, obviously. Uh, there was uh, two provinces in South Korea, uh, all of Iran, uh, and as of about uh, 20 minutes ago when the press conference started, they've added uh, they've added Thailand and Egypt to that list, uh, and one other country which I missed, unfortunately. Um, but they're also advising, it's interesting, they mentioned India by name, uh, they're advising people in countries like that that they're going to keep an eye on them. They're basically saying there's going to be some countries where we don't trust the health infrastructure We don't trust their ability to test or keep up to speed. And now we're really worried about cases coming in from those countries that are undetectable. Hmm. All right. Well, Shane, thanks so much uh, for bringing us the very latest on that. And so that starts Friday. And at this point, uh, that's going ahead. And I imagine uh, there there, there could be even more measures brought in. Yeah, if if this thing really hits the fan and these measures don't work to the extent which I think they're hoping they will, 
uh, I think that they're going to have to do something really, 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 really drastic. Uh, by the way, I should add, on top of all the changes, Joe, um, they're strongly recommending a complete ban in all gatherings of 100 or more people here in Denmark. The one twist is right now they're using the language strongly recommend. We strongly discourage. The reason for that is, as I understand it from the Prime Minister, is there's no law that allows Denmark to actually enact a ban like that. So she is saying in the press conference that uh, Denmark will now bring legislation forward. They're hoping by next week, and they will mandate that 100-person ban. Hmm. All right. Well, Shane, again, thanks so much for bringing us the very latest. Appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Good to hear from you. All right. You too. That is Shane Woodford. Used to be a reporter here at CKNW, now a freelance journalist living in Denmark. And again, that is a sweeping two-week countrywide ban shutdown of all non-critical public service, all students except those with no childcare and no other option. And uh, that just announced at a news conference in Denmark. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, some restrictions when it comes to gatherings, particularly of gatherings larger than 250 people people in Washington state, at least parts of Washington state, that to to help slow down the spread of COVID-19. So what exactly does this mean and how will it be policed? Well, joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Joey Thompson, a reporter with the Daily Herald in Everett. Joey, thanks so much for taking some time. Thanks for having me. Uh, So what exactly has uh, Jay Inslee announced today? So he is using um, some executive powers under state law to prohibit, you know, public gatherings with more than 250 people that, you know, can include church services, sporting events. Uh, you know, the Seattle Mariners were set to open up their homestand at the end of March. That's probably not going to happen in Seattle. Um, I know that uh, our WHL team at Everett, the Silver Tips, is going to finish out the regular season in an empty arena. And, you know, churches, with more than 250 people aren't going to have to maybe go to sort of a a telecast service, uh, concerts, other things like that are in doubt. And are you getting a sense of reaction from people as to whether or not they think this is a good idea or if it's an overreaction to what's happening? I think it's a mixed bag. You know, I, I think some people are, you know, doing the same and saying this is, you know, we want to self quarantine. We want to, to get through this, the best way possible and others are sort of saying is this exactly what needs to be done but you know i I think you're going to have that both ways i haven't seen maybe one side louder than the other right and where is uh, washington state at now as far as uh, do you know the number of cases and the number of fatalities at this point yeah we're at about in Snohomish county we're at about 70 cases statewide i think it's about 250 we're at 24 deaths statewide we had one announced uh, today in Snohomish County at a long-term life care facility up in Stanwood, Washington, a man in his 80s. Um, but yeah, we're, you know, I know that some researcher modeling is showing that realistically there are probably more than a thousand cases in Washington State right now. We just don't have the test results back. Uh, and the reason that Inslee, Governor Inslee is giving for this sort of action is that they're projecting that that number could be more than 20,000 by the first week of April, if nothing's done about social distancing. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned the, the testing kits because that became an issue. At least there were some questions about that in when the first cases were being, um, were being notif- uh, noticed in the uh, first care home, the, the one in Kirkland. And do you know yeah. if that's been resolved? So it sounds like the capacity, at least for testing, 
is well beyond what it was at the initiation of the outbreak. Um, you know, thousands of tests can be done a day. I think right now at the University of Washington Virology, I think they're doing hundreds, but they could be doing more even. Uh, when Governor Inslee came to Everett for a press conference last week, he had stressed that, you know, not everyone needs to get tested. Um, if you aren't under that, you know, under 60, no underlying health issues, and if you're just experiencing mild symptoms, you know, a positive test result isn't going to change much how they treat you. They want you to quarantine and they want you to treat those symptoms. Uh, but it does sound like hospitals are finding ways to get more tests done, you know, whether that's doing it out in the parking lot while all the rooms are full or things like that. Hmm. And and how do you think, are they going to be able to police this? So do you think people will be um, be okay with doing this, with self-isolating and making sure not to be at large gatherings? Or, or are there actually going to be penalties if people are found to be breaking these rules? So there are penalties. You know, state law says that they can essentially take you to court if you try to you know, go against this ban on large events. Uh, the governor is saying that he doesn't anticipate there to be any issues and that people are going to, you know, adhere to this, understand the severity. I think it's to be seen how people are going to react to this. I don't think this is anything like we've seen before, you know, or at least in a long time in terms of what is isn't allowed. Uh, weddings, funerals, things like that all could be in question uh, because of, you know, the limit on gathering. And even in Salamish and King counties, Events under 250 people could still be prohibited if they're not following health district guidelines, uh, one of which is advertising that, you know, folks over 60 or with underlying conditions should not attend. Hmm, interesting. And schools at this point, though, are not part of this. People will still be or kids will still be going to school as regular? Yeah, he said, uh, our governor said that school districts across the state need to be preparing for uh, a long-term closure, which could be weeks or months, uh, but that they also need to be prepared to make sure kids can get their meals that you know schools normally provide and, and what child care options are for folks. Uh, that decision could be coming in days. We don't know. Uh, we've got one school district, the North Shore District, is closed for up to 14 days. They did that, I think, about a week and a half ago, and I think they're going to extend that. They went to an online learning system, but yeah, right now, uh, districts are for the most part open. Schools have been closing sporadically for cleaning and things like that, but there is no, you know, state mandate to close. Uh, in BC today, uh, the premier here met with the leaders of various faith groups, uh, presumably to talk about religious gatherings going forward. It's been something that's been discussed as far as um, suggestions that maybe instead of going to these big gatherings where there's such close contact, people have virtual gatherings instead. I'm guessing, though, the the uh, measures brought in today in these counties, would that also ban religious gatherings where in many cases you would see more than 250 people? You know, everything we've been told so far says, yes, uh, you know, faith-based gatherings are going to fall under that uh, mandate. I uh, haven't gotten to talk to any leaders yet. I know some churches in the area have already gone to, you know, telecasting services and you know, advising that, you know, folks stay home just to avoid any sort of spread. Uh, but that is going to affect a lot of uh, churches in the area, and, you know, they're also going to probably fall under that purview, even if you're less than 250 people, you're going to have to advise that vulnerable populations stay home.
Uh, absolutely. You mentioned too with the kids and kids that are in programs that, that get meals and such. There must be some concern also, and whether it's religious groups or places where people uh, access food, access meals where they wouldn't be getting them wouldn't be getting them otherwise. I would imagine there would be some concerns with people no longer being able to access those services. Yeah, you know, the districts that I've talked to in the last few weeks have all expressed, you know, equity concerns, as they're calling them, because so many students rely on meals, and how are you going to get them to those to them if they're at home? You know, can you can we ask all parents to stay home to watch after their kids, uh, you know, even if that's something they can't afford to do? And then even with online learning, you know, you have a large percentage of students in every district that aren't going to have that access to the required technology. So that's something that, you know, they they tell me they've been planning, you know, trying to figure out how they're going to accommodate all, every student in the district. But so far, we're, we're yet to see exactly what that's going to look like. And as for more measures, you mentioned there could be more measures being announced. Did uh, Governor Inslee give any indication or uh, idea on when that might happen? Uh, you know, didn't get any idea when, you know, coming days, coming weeks. That's when they expect things to really take off. You know, I he mentioned that this, you know, the three counties affected it. This could go statewide, depending on where cases start popping up. Uh, and, and the order goes through the end of March. But it's you know pretty likely, he said, very likely even that that's going to have to get extended. All right. Well, thank you so much. I know it's a very busy day for you uh, in your part in your neck of the woods. So thanks so much for bringing us up to date. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. All right. That is Joey Thompson, a reporter with the Daily Herald of Everett. And again, a ban on gatherings of more than 250 people in what you could call the entire Seattle metro area, those three counties. Uh, That's until the end of March. Very likely that will be extended.